What can the hotshot detective from Paris reveal about the case that eludes the great Hercule Poirot? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. The Hunchback of Notre Dame has now been released in its entirety. If you are a current supporter of the podcast and have not received the email and corresponding download link for the entire audiobook, please send an email to support at thebestaudiobooks.com and I'll get you squared away. Do you know a student, teacher, or researcher who studies a lot? If you're looking for the perfect gift for them this holiday season, look no further, for they are erudite troglodytes, intellectual cave dwellers. Click on the link in the description for this episode to get an erudite troglodyte t-shirt, coffee mug, tote bag, or even a sticker for the erudite troglodyte in your life. It's a -a one-of-a-kind gift that is only available at the Classic Tales online store. I have two shirts, and I wear them all the time. Well, it looks like I didn't win any of my Sovas nominations, but that's okay. We'll keep plugging along. Thank you for all your support. As a personal moment, Seven is auditioning for Grassroots Shakespeare tomorrow. It's a local Shakespeare troupe that performs Shakespeare in a super appealing way, so it's uber approachable. Like when they did Hamlet, they spurted Kool-Aid all over the crowd whenever there was a blood-spurting scene. It's super, super fun and approachable. They travel and perform for middle and high schools, as well as different communities. He's been working on his audition piece for a long time, and he's really excited. I hope he gets in. And when it comes to Thanksgiving, I may have mentioned this before, one of our favorite things to bring to any gathering is chestnut dressing. I fell in love with chestnuts during my time in Hungary, and they are so scarce in America. We love to look forward to it every year, The chestnuts are such a pain to peel that we only do it once a year. It's a fun, fun tradition. Well, that's our personal moment. And now, The Murder on the Links, Part 2 of 7, by Agatha Christie. Chapter 4. The Letter Signed, Bella. Francoise had left the room. The magistrate was drumming thoughtfully on the table. Monsieur Bax, he said at length, here we have directly conflicting testimony. Which are we to believe, Francoise or Denise? 
Denise, said the commissary decidedly. It was she who let the visitor in. Francoise is old and obstinate, and has evidently taken a dislike to Madame Dubray. Besides, our own knowledge tends to show that Renault was entangled with another woman. Tiens, cried Monsieur Rotet. We have forgotten to inform Monsieur Poirot of that. He searched among the papers on the table, and finally handed the one he was in search of to my friend. This letter, Monsieur Poirot, we found in the pocket of the dead man's overcoat. Poirot took it and unfolded it. It was somewhat worn and crumbled, and was written in English in a rather unformed hand. My dearest one, why have you not written for so long? You do love me still, don't you? Your letters lately have been so different, cold and strange. And now this long silence, it makes me afraid. If you were to stop loving me, but that's impossible. What a silly kid I am, always imagining things. But if you did stop loving me, I don't know what I should do. Kill myself, perhaps. I couldn't live without you. Sometimes I fancy another woman is coming between us. Let her look out, that's all. And you, too. I'd as soon kill you as let her have you. I mean it. But there I'm writing high-flown nonsense. You love me, and I love you. Yes, love you, love you, love you. Your own adoring Bella. There was no address or date. Poirot handed it back with a grave face. And the assumption is, Monsieur le Juge? The examining magistrate shrugged his shoulders. Obviously, Monsieur Renaud was entangled with this Englishwoman, Bella. He comes over here, meets Madame Dubray, and starts an intrigue with her. He cools off to the other, and she instantly suspects something. This letter contains a distinct threat, Monsieur Poirot. At first sight, the case seemed simplicity itself, jealousy. The fact that Monsieur Renault was stabbed in the back seemed to point distinctly to its being a woman's crime. Poirot nodded. The stab in the back, yes, but not the grave. That was laborious work, hard work. No woman dug that grave, monsieur. That was a man's doing. The commissary exclaimed excitedly, Yes, yes, you are right. We did not think of that. As I said, continued Monsieur Rotet, At first sight the case seemed simple, but the masked men and the letter you received from Monsieur Renault complicate matters. Here we seem to have an entirely different set of circumstances, with no relationship between the two. As regards the letter written to yourself, do you think it is possible that it referred in any way to this Bella and her threats? Poirot shook his head. Hardly. A man like Monsieur Renaud, who has led an adventurous life in out-of-the-way places, would not be likely to ask for protection against a woman. The examining magistrate nodded his head emphatically. My view exactly. Then we must look for the explanation of the letter. In Santiago, finished the commissary, I shall cable without delay to the police in that city, requesting full details of the murdered man's life out there, 
his love affairs, his business transactions, his friendships, and any enmities he may have incurred. It will be strange if, after that, we do not hold a clue to his mysterious murder. The commissary looked round for approval. Excellent, said Poirot appreciatively. His wife, too, may be able to give us a pointer, added the magistrate. You have found no other letters from this Bella amongst Monsieur Renault's effects? asked Poirot. No. Of course, one of our first proceedings was to search through his private papers in the study. We found nothing of interest, however. All seemed square and above board. The only thing at all out of the ordinary was his will. Here it is. Poirot ran through the document. So, a legacy of a thousand pounds to Mr. Stoner. Who is he, by the way? Monsieur Renault's secretary. He remained in England, but was over here once or twice for a weekend. And everything else left unconditionally to his beloved wife, Eloise. Simply drawn up, but perfectly legal. Witnessed by the two servants, Denise and Francoise. Nothing so very unusual about that. He handed it back. Perhaps, began Bex. You did not notice. The date? Twinkled Poirot. But yes, I noticed it. A fortnight ago. Possibly it marks his first intimation of danger. Many rich men die intestate, through never considering the likelihood of their demise. But it is dangerous to draw conclusions prematurely. It points, however, to his having a real liking and fondness for his wife, in spite of his amorous intrigues. Yes, said Monsieur Rote doubtfully, but it is possibly a little unfair on his son, since it leaves him entirely dependent on his mother. If she were to marry again, and her second husband obtained an ascendancy over her, this boy might never touch a penny of his father's money. Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Man is a vain animal. Monsieur Renaud figured to himself without doubt that his widow would never marry again. As to the son, it may have been a wise precaution to leave the money in his mother's hands. The sons of rich men are proverbially wild. It may be as you say. Now, Monsieur Poirot, you would without doubt like to visit the scene of the crime— I am sorry that the body has been removed, but, of course, photographs have been taken from every conceivable angle and will be at your disposal as soon as they are available. I thank you, monsieur, for all your courtesy. The commissary rose. Come with me, messieurs. He opened the door and bowed ceremoniously to Poirot to precede him. Poirot, with equal politeness, drew back and bowed to the commissary. Monsieur, monsieur. At last they got out into the hall. That room there, it is the study, eh? asked Poirot suddenly, nodding towards the door opposite. Yes, you would like to see it? He threw the door open as he spoke, and we entered. The room which Monsieur Renaud had chosen for his own particular use was small, but furnished with great taste and comfort. A business-like writing-desk with many pigeonholes stood in the window. Two large leather-covered armchairs faced the fireplace, 
and between them was a round table covered with the latest books and magazines. Bookshelves lined two of the walls, and at the end of the room opposite the window there was a handsome oak sideboard with a tantalus on top. The curtains and portiere were of soft dull green, and the carpet matched them in tone. Poirot stood a moment, talking in the room. Then he stepped forward, passed his hand lightly over the backs of the leather chairs, picked up a magazine from the table, and drew a finger gingerly over the surface of the oak sideboard. His face expressed complete approval. No dust? I asked with a smile. He beamed on me, appreciative of my knowledge of his peculiarities. Not a particle, mon ami, and for once perhaps it is a pity. His sharp, bird-like eyes darted here and there. Ah, he remarked suddenly, with an intonation of relief, the hearthrug is crooked, and he bent down to straighten it. Suddenly he uttered an exclamation and rose. In his hand he held a small fragment of paper. In France, as in England, he remarked, the domestics omit to sweep under the mats. Bex took the fragment from him, and I came closer to examine it. You recognize it, eh, Hastings? I shook my head, puzzled. And yet that particular shade of pink paper was very familiar. The commissary's mental processes were quicker than mine. A fragment of a shack, he exclaimed. The piece of paper was roughly about two inches square. On it was written in ink the word Duvin. Bien, said Bax. This check was payable to, or drawn by, one named Duvin. The former, I fancy, said Poirot. For, if I am not mistaken, the handwriting is that of Monsieur Renault. That was soon established by comparing it with the memorandum from the desk. Dear me, murmured the commissary, with a crestfallen air. I really cannot imagine how I came to overlook this. Poirot laughed. The moral of it is, always look under the mats. My friend Hastings here will tell you that anything in the least crooked is a torment to me. As soon as I saw that the hearthrug was out of the straight, I said to myself, Tiens, the leg of the chair caught it in being pushed back. Possibly there may be something beneath it in which the good Françoise overlooked. Françoise, or Denise, or Leonie, whoever did this room. Since there is no dust, the room must have been done this morning. I reconstruct the incident like this. Yesterday, possibly last night, Monsieur Renaud drew a check to the order of someone named Duvin. Afterwards, it was torn up and scattered on the floor. This morning? But Monsieur Bax was already pulling impatiently at the bell. Françoise answered it. Yes, there had been a lot of pieces of paper on the floor. What had she done with them? Put them in the kitchen stove, of course. What else? With a gesture of despair, Bex dismissed her. Then his face lightening, he ran to the desk. In a minute, he was hunting through the dead man's checkbook. Then he repeated his former gesture. The last counterfoil was blank. Courage, cried Poirot, clapping him on the back. Without doubt, Madame Renaud will be able to tell us all about this mysterious person named Duvin. The commissary's face cleared. That is true, 
Let us proceed. As we turned to leave the room, Poirot remarked casually, It was here that Monsieur Renaud received his guest last night, eh? It was. But how did you know? By this. I found it on the back of the leather chair. And he held up between his finger and thumb a long black hair, a woman's hair. Monsieur Beck took us out by the back of the house to where there was a small shed leaning against the house. He produced a key from his pocket and unlocked it. The body is here. We moved it from the scene of the crime just before you arrived, as the photographers had done with it. He opened the door and we passed in. The murdered man lay on the ground with a sheet over him. Monsieur Bex dexterously whipped off the covering. Renault was a man of medium height, slender and lithe in figure. He looked about fifty years of age, and his dark hair was plentifully streaked with grey. He was clean-shaven with a long, thin nose, and eyes set rather close together, and his skin was deeply bronzed, as that of a man who had spent most of his life beneath tropical skies. His lips were drawn back from his teeth, and an expression of absolute amazement and terror was stamped on the livid features. "'One can see by his face that he was stabbed in the back,' remarked Poirot. Very gently, he turned the dead man over. There, between the shoulder-blades, staining the light fawn overcoat, was a round, dark patch. In the middle of it there was a slit in the cloth. Poirot examined it narrowly. "'Have you any idea with what weapon the crime was committed?' It was left in the wound. The commissary reached down a large glass jar. In it was a small object that looked to me more like a paper knife than anything else. It had a black handle and a narrow shining blade. The whole thing was not more than ten inches long. Poirot tested the discoloured point gingerly with his fingertip. Ma foi, but it is sharp. A nice, easy little tool for murder. "'Unfortunately, we could find no trace of fingerprints on it,' remarked Bex regretfully. "'The murderer must have worn gloves.' "'Of course he did,' said Poirot contemptuously. "'Even in Santiago they know enough for that. "'The veriest amateur of an English maze knows it. "'Thanks to the publicity the Bertillon system has been given in the press. "'All the same, it interests me very much that there were no fingerprints.' It is so amazingly simple to leave the fingerprints of someone else. And then the police are happy. He shook his head. I very much fear our criminal is not a man of method. Either that, or he was pressed for time. But we shall see. He let the body fall back into its original position. He wore only underclothes under his overcoat, I see, he remarked. Yes. The examining magistrate thinks that is rather a curious point. At this minute there was a tap on the door, which Bex had closed after him. He strode forward and opened it. Françoise was there. She endeavoured to peep in with ghoulish curiosity. Well, what is it? demanded Bex impatiently. Madame, she sends a message that she is much recovered and is quite ready to receive the examining magistrate. Good, said Monsieur Bex briskly. Tell Monsieur Rotet, and say that we will come at once.
Poirot lingered a moment, looking back towards the body. I thought for a moment that he was going to apostrophize it, to declare aloud his determination never to rest till he had discovered the murderer. But when he spoke, it was tamely and awkwardly, and his comment was ludicrously inappropriate to the solemnity of the moment. He wore his overcoat very long, he said constrainedly. Chapter 5 Mrs. Renault's Story We found Monsieur Rotet awaiting us in the hall, and we all proceeded upstairs together, Francoise marching ahead to show us the way. Poirot went up in a zigzag fashion which puzzled me, until he whispered with a grimace, no wonder the servants heard Monsieur Renault mounting the stairs. Not a board of them, but creaks, fit to wake the dead. At the head of the staircase, a small passage branched off. The servants' quarters, explained Bax. We continued along the corridor, and Francoise tapped on the last door to the right of it. A faint voice bade us enter, and we passed into a large, sunny apartment looking out towards the sea which showed blue and sparkling about a quarter of a mile distant. On a couch, propped up with cushions, and attended by Dr. Durand, lay a tall, striking-looking woman. She was middle-aged, and her once dark hair was now almost entirely silvered, but the intense vitality and strength of her personality would have made itself felt anywhere. You knew at once that you were in the presence of what the French call Une maîtresse femme. She greeted us with a dignified inclination of the head. Pray, be seated, messieurs. We took chairs, and the magistrate's clerk established himself at a round table. I hope, madame, began Monsieur Rotet, that it will not distress you unduly to relate to us what occurred last night. Not at all, monsieur. I know the value of time, if these scoundrelly assassins are to be caught and punished. Very well, madame. It will fatigue you less, I think, if I ask you questions, and you confine yourself to answering them. At what time did you go to bed last night? At half-past nine, monsieur. I was tired. And your husband? About an hour later, I fancy. And did he seem disturbed? Upset in any way? No. "'Not more than usual. "'What happened then? "'We slept. "'I was awakened by a hand being pressed over my mouth. "'I tried to scream out, but the hand prevented me. "'There were two men in the room. "'They were both masked. "'Can you describe them at all, madame? "'One was very tall and had a long black beard. "'The other was short and stout. "'His beard was reddish. "'They both wore hats pulled down over their eyes.' Ah, said the magistrate thoughtfully. Too much beard, I fear. You mean they were false? Yes, madame. But continue your story. It was the short man who was holding me. He forced a gag into my mouth, and then bound me with rope, hand and foot. The other man was standing over my husband. He had caught up my little dagger paper knife from the dressing table, and was holding it with a point just over his heart. When the short man had finished with me, he joined the other, and they forced my husband to get up and accompany them into the dressing-room next door. I was nearly fainting with terror, 
Nevertheless, I listened desperately. They were speaking in too low a tone for me to hear what they said, but I recognized the language, a bastard Spanish such as is spoken in some parts of South America. They seemed to be demanding something from my husband, and presently they grew angry and their voices rose a little. I think the tall man was speaking. "'You know what we want,' he said. "'The secret. Where is it?' I do not know what my husband answered, but the other replied fiercely, "'You lie. We know you have it. Where are your keys?' Then I heard sounds of drawers being pulled out. There was a safe on the wall of my husband's dressing-room in which he always keeps a fairly large amount of ready money. Leonie tells me this has been rifled and the money taken. But evidently what they were looking for was not there, for presently I heard the tall man with an oath command my husband to dress himself. Soon after that I think some noise in the house must have disturbed them, for they hustled my husband out into my room only half-dressed. Pardon, interrupted Poirot, but is there then no other egress from the dressing-room? No, monsieur, there is only the communicating door into my room. They hurried my husband through, the short man in front, and the tall man behind him with the dagger still in his hand. Paul tried to break away to come to me. I saw his agonized eyes. He turned to his captors. I must speak to her, he said. Then coming to the side of the bed, It's all right, Eloise, he said. Do not be afraid. I shall return before morning. But although he tried to make his voice confident, I could see the terror in his eyes. Then they hustled him out of the door, the tall man saying, One sound and you are a dead man, remember. After that, continued Mrs. Renell, I must have fainted. The next thing I recollect is Leonie rubbing my wrists and giving me brandy. Madame Renault, said the magistrate, have you any idea what it was for which the assassins were searching? None whatever, monsieur. Had you any knowledge that your husband feared something? Yes, I had seen the change in him. How long ago was that? Mrs. Renault reflected. Ten days, perhaps? Not longer? Possibly. I only noticed it then. Did you question your husband at all as to the cause? Once he put me off evasively. Nevertheless, I was convinced that he was suffering some terrible anxiety. However, since he evidently wished to conceal the fact from me, I tried to pretend that I had noticed nothing. Were you aware that he had called in the services of a detective? A detective? exclaimed Mrs. Renault, very much surprised. Yes, this gentleman, Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Poirot bowed. He arrived today in response to a summons from your husband. And taking the letter written by Monsieur Renault from his pocket, he handed it to the lady. She read it with apparently genuine astonishment. I had no idea of this. Evidently he was fully cognizant of the danger. Now, madame, I will beg of you to be frank with me. Is there any incident in your husband's past life in South America which might throw light on his murder? Mrs. Renault reflected deeply, but at last shook her head. I can think of none. Certainly my husband had many enemies, people he had got the better of in some way or another, but I can think of no one distinctive case. I do not say there is no such incident, 
only that I am not aware of it. The examining magistrate stroked his beard disconsolately. And you can fix the time of this outrage? Yes, I distinctly remember hearing the clock on the mantelpiece strike two. She nodded toward an eight-day traveling clock in a leather case, which stood in the center of the chimney-piece. Poirot rose from his seat, scrutinized the clock carefully, and nodded satisfied. And here, too, exclaimed Monsieur Bax, is a wristwatch, knocked off the dressing-table by the assassins, without doubt, and smashed to atoms. Little did they know it would testify against them. Gently he picked away the fragments of broken glass. Suddenly his face changed to one of utter stupefaction. Mon Dieu! he ejaculated. What is it? The hands of the watch point to seven o'clock. What? cried the examining magistrate, astonished. But Poirot, deft as ever, took the broken trinket from the startled commissary and held it to his ear. Then he smiled. The glass is broken, yes, but the watch itself is still going. The explanation of the mystery was greeted with a relieved smile, but the magistrate bethought him of another point. But surely it is not seven o'clock now? No, said Poirot gently. It is a few minutes after five. Possibly the watch gains. Is that so, madame? Mrs. Renault was frowning perplexedly. It does gain, she admitted, but I've never known it to gain quite so much as that. With a gesture of impatience, the magistrate left the matter of the watch and proceeded with his interrogatory. Madame, the front door was found ajar. It seems almost certain that the murderers entered that way. Yet it has not been forced at all. Can you suggest any explanation? Possibly my husband went out for a stroll the last thing, and forgot to latch it when he came in. Is that a likely thing to happen? Very. My husband was the most absent-minded of men. There was a slight frown on her brow as she spoke, as though this trait in the dead man's character had at times vexed her. There is one inference I think we might draw, remarked the commissary suddenly. Since the men insisted on Monsieur Renault dressing himself, it looks as though the place they were taking him to, the place where the secret was concealed, lay some distance away. The magistrate nodded. Yes, far, and yet not too far, since he spoke of being back by morning. What times does the last train leave the station of Merlonville? asked Poirot. Eleven fifty one way and twelve-seventeen the other, but it is more probable that they had a motor waiting. Of course, agreed Poirot, looking somewhat crestfallen. Indeed, that might be one way of tracing them, continued the magistrate, brightening. A motor containing two foreigners is quite likely to have been noticed. That is an excellent point, Monsieur Bex. He smiled to himself, and then, becoming grave once more, he said to Mrs. Renault, there is another question. Do you know of any one of the name Duvin? Duvin? Mrs. Renault repeated thoughtfully. No, for the moment I cannot say I do. You have never heard your husband mention any one of that name? Never. 
Do you know anyone whose Christian name is Bella? He watched Mrs. Renault narrowly as he spoke, seeking to surprise any signs of anger or consciousness. But she merely shook her head in quite a natural manner. He continued his questions. Are you aware that your husband had a visitor last night? Now he saw the red mount slightly in her cheeks, but she replied composedly, No. Who was that? A lady. Indeed. But for the moment the magistrate was content to say no more. It seemed unlikely that Madame de Bray had any connection with the crime, and he was anxious not to upset Mrs. Renault more than necessary. He made a sign to the commissary, and the latter replied with a nod. Then rising, he went across the room, and returned with the glass jar we had seen in the outhouse in his hand. From this he took the dagger. Madame, he said gently, do you recognize this? She gave a little cry. Yes, that is my little dagger. Then she saw the stained point, and she drew back, her eyes widening with horror. Is that blood? Yes, madame. Your husband was killed with this weapon. He removed it hastily from sight. You are quite sure about its being the one that was on your dressing table last night? Oh, yes. It was a present from my son. He was in the Air Force during the war. He gave his ages older than it was. There was a touch of the proud mother in her voice. This was made from a streamlined aeroplane wire, and was given to me by my son as a souvenir of the war. I see, madame. That brings us to another matter. Your son, where is he now? It is necessary that he should be telegraphed to without delay. Jack, he is on his way to Buenos Aires. What? Yes, my husband telegraphed him yesterday. He had sent him on business to Paris, but yesterday he discovered that it would be necessary for him to proceed without delay to South America. There was a boat leaving Cherbourg for Buenos Aires last night, and he wired him to catch it. Have you any knowledge of what the business in Buenos Aires was? No, monsieur, I know nothing of its nature. But Buenos Aires is not my son's final destination. He was going overland from there to Santiago. And in unison the magistrate and the commissary exclaimed, Santiago! Again Santiago! It was at this moment, when we were all stunned by the mention of that word, that Poirot approached Mrs. Renault. He had been standing by the window like a man lost in a dream, and I doubt if he had fully taken in what had passed. He paused by the lady's side with a bow. Pardon, madame, but may I examine your wrists? Though slightly surprised at the request, Mrs. Renault held them out to him. Round each of them was a cruel red mark, where the cords had bitten into the flesh, as he examined them, I fancied that a momentary flicker of excitement I had seen in his eyes disappeared. "'They must cause you great pain,' he said, and once more he looked puzzled. But the magistrate was speaking excitedly. "'Young Monsieur Renaud must be communicated with at once by wireless. It is vital that we should know anything he can tell us about this trip to Santiago.' He hesitated. I hoped he might have been near at hand, 
so that we could have saved you pain, madame. He paused. You mean, she said in a low voice, the identification of my husband's body? The magistrate bowed his head. I am a strong woman, monsieur. I can bear all that is required of me. I am ready. Now. Oh, tomorrow will be quite soon enough, I assure you. I prefer to get it over, she said in a low tone, a spasm of pain crossing her face. If you will be so good as to give me your arm, doctor. The doctor hastened forward. A cloak was thrown over Mrs. Renault's shoulders, and a slow procession went down the stairs. Monsieur Bex hurried on ahead to open the door of the shed. In a minute or two, Mrs. Renault appeared in the doorway. She was very pale but resolute. Beside her, Monsieur Rotet was clacking commiserations and apologies like an animated hen. She raised her hand to her face. A moment, messieurs, while I steal myself. She took her hand away and looked down at the dead man. Then the marvellous self-control which had upheld her so far deserted her. Paul! she cried. Husband! Oh, God! And pitching forward, she fell unconscious to the ground. Instantly, Poirot was beside her. He raised the lid of her eye, felt her pulse. When he had satisfied himself that she had really fainted, he drew aside. He caught me by the arm. I am an imbecile, my friend. If ever there was love and grief in a woman's voice, I heard it then. My little idea was all wrong. I began. I must start again. Chapter 6 The Scene of the Crime Between them, the doctor and Monsieur Rotet carried the unconscious woman into the house. The commissary looked after them, shaking his head. Pauvre femme, he murmured to himself. The shock was too much for her. Well, well, we can do nothing. Now, Monsieur Poirot, shall we visit the place where the crime was committed? If you please, Monsieur Bax. We passed through the house and out by the front door. Poirot had looked up at the staircase in passing and shook his head in a dissatisfied manner. It is to me incredible that the servants heard nothing. The creaking of that staircase with three people descending it would awaken the dead. It was the middle of the night, remember. They were sound asleep by then. But Poirot continued to shake his head as though not fully accepting the explanation. On the sweep of the drive he paused, looking up at the house. What moved them in the first place to try if the front door were open? It was the most unlikely thing that it should be. It was far more probable that they should at once try to force a window. But all the windows on the ground floor are barred with iron shutters, objected the commissary. Poirot pointed to a window on the first floor. That is the window of the bedroom we have just come from, is it not? And see, there is a tree by which it would be the easiest thing in the world to mount. Possibly, admitted the other. But they could not have done so without leaving footprints in the flower-bed. I saw the justice of his words. 
there were two large oval flower beds planted with scarlet geraniums, one each side of the steps leading up to the front door. The tree in question had its roots actually at the back of the bed itself, and it would have been impossible to reach it without stepping on the bed. You see, continued the commissary, owing to the dry weather, no prints would show on the drive or paths, but on the soft mould of the flower bed, it would have been a very different affair. Poirot went close to the bed and studied it attentively. As Bex had said, the mould was perfectly smooth. There was not an indentation on it anywhere. Poirot nodded, as though convinced, and we turned away, but he suddenly darted off and began examining the other flower-bed. Monsieur Bex, he called, see here, here are plenty of traces for you. The commissary joined him and smiled. My dear Monsieur Poirot, those are without doubt the footprints of the gardener's large hobnailed boots. In any case, it would have no importance, since this side we have no tree, and consequently no means of gaining access to the upper story. True, said Poirot, evidently crestfallen. So you think these footprints are of no importance? Not the least in the world. Then to my utter astonishment, Poirot pronounced these words. I do not agree with you. I have a little idea that these footprints are the most important things we have seen yet. Monsieur Beck said nothing, merely shrugged his shoulders. He was far too courteous to utter his real opinion. Shall we proceed? he asked instead. Certainly. I can investigate this matter of the footprints later, said Poirot cheerfully. Instead of following the drive down to the gate, Monsieur Bex turned up a path that branched off at right angles. It led up a slight incline, round to the right of the house, and was bordered on either side by a kind of shrubbery. Suddenly it emerged into a little clearing, from which one obtained a view of the sea. A seat had been placed here, and not far from it was a rather ramshackle shed. A few steps further on, a neat line of small bushes marked the boundary of the villa grounds. Monsieur Bex pushed his way through these, and we found ourselves on a wide stretch of open downs. I looked round, and saw something that filled me with astonishment. "'Why, this is a golf course!' I cried. Bex nodded. "'The limits are not completed yet,' he explained. "'It is hoped to be able to open some time next month. It was some of the men working on them who discovered the body early this morning. I gave a gasp. A little to my left, where for the moment I had overlooked it, was a long, narrow pit, and by it, face downwards, was the body of a man. For a moment my heart gave a terrible leap, and I had a wild fancy that the tragedy had been duplicated. But the commissary dispelled my illusion by moving forward with a sharp exclamation of annoyance. What have my police been about? They had strict orders to allow no one near the place without proper credentials. The man on the ground turned his head over his shoulder. But I have proper credentials, he remarked, and rose slowly to his feet. My dear Monsieur Giraud, cried the commissary, I had no idea that you had arrived even. The examining magistrate has been awaiting you with the utmost impatience. As he spoke, 
I was scanning the newcomer with the keenest curiosity. The famous detective from the Paris Sûreté was familiar to me by name, and I was extremely interested to see him in the flash. He was very tall, perhaps about thirty years of age, with auburn hair and moustache, and a military carriage. There was a trace of arrogance in his manner, which showed that he was fully alive to his own importance. Bex introduced us, presenting Poirot as a colleague. A flicker of interest came into the detective's eye. "'I know you by name, Monsieur Poirot,' he said. "'You cut quite a figure in the old days, didn't you? But methods are very different now.' "'Crimes, though, are very much the same,' remarked Poirot gently. I saw at once that Giraud was prepared to be hostile. He resented the other being associated with him, and I felt that if he came across any clue of importance, he would be more than likely to keep it to himself. "'The examining magistrate,' began Bex again, but Giraud interrupted him rudely. "'A fig for the examining magistrate! The light is the important thing. For all practical purposes it will be gone in another half-hour or so.' I know all about the case, and the people at the house will do very well until tomorrow. But if we're going to find a clue to the murderers, here is the spot we shall find it. Is it your police who have been trampling all over the place? I thought they knew better nowadays. Assuredly they do. The marks you complain of were made by the workman who discovered the body. The other grunted disgustedly. I can see the tracks where the three of them came through the hedge— but they were cunning. You can just recognize the center footmarks as those of Monsieur Renaud, but those on either side have been carefully obliterated. Not that there would really be much to see anyway on this hard ground, but they weren't taking any chances. The external sign, said Poirot. That is what you seek, eh? The other detective stared. Of course. A very faint smile came to Poirot's lips. He seemed about to speak, but checked himself. He bent down to where a spade was lying. "'That's what the grave was dug with, right enough,' said Giraud. "'But you'll get nothing from it. It was Renault's own spade, and the man who used it wore gloves. Here they are.' He gesticulated with his foot to where two soiled earth-stained gloves were lying. "'And there Renault's too, or at least his gardener's, I tell you.' The men who planned out this crime were taking no chances. The man was stabbed with his own dagger, and would have been buried with his own spade. They counted on leaving no traces, but I'll beat them. There's always something, and I mean to find it. But Poirot was now apparently interested in something else, a short, discoloured piece of lead piping which lay beside the spade. He touched it delicately with his finger. And does this too? "'Belong to the murdered man?' he asked, "'and I thought I detected a subtle flavour of irony in the question.' "'Giraud shrugged his shoulders to indicate that he neither knew nor cared. "'May have been lying around for weeks. "'Anyway, it doesn't interest me. "'I, on the contrary, find it very interesting,' said Poirot sweetly. "'I guessed that he was merely bent on annoying the Paris detective, "'and if so, he succeeded.' The other turned away rudely, remarking that he had no time to waste, and bending down he resumed his minute search of the ground. Meanwhile Poirot, as though struck by a sudden idea, stepped back over the boundary, 
and tried the door of the little shed. That's locked, said Giraud over his shoulder. But it's only a place where the gardener keeps his rubbish. The spade didn't come from there, but from the tool shed up by the house. Marvellous, murmured Monsieur Bex to me ecstatically. He has been here but half an hour, and he already knows everything. What a man! Undoubtedly Giraud is the greatest detective alive today. Although I disliked the detective heartily, I nevertheless was secretly impressed. Efficiency seemed to radiate from the man. I could not help feeling that so far Poirot had not greatly distinguished himself, and it vexed me. He seemed to be directing his attention to all sorts of silly, puerile points that had nothing to do with the case. Indeed, at this juncture, he suddenly asked, "'Monsieur Bex, tell me, I pray you, the meaning of this whitewashed line that extends all round the grave. Is it a device of the police?' "'No, Monsieur Poirot. It is an affair of the golf course. It shows that there is here to be a bunker, as you call it.' "'A bunker?' Poirot turned to me. "'That is the irregular hole filled with sand and a bank at one side, is it not?' I concurred. "'You do not play the golf, Monsieur Poirot?' inquired Bax. "'I? Never. What a game!' He became excited. "'Figure to yourself, each hole it is of a different length. The obstacles, they are arranged mathematically. Even the greens are frequently up one side. There is only one pleasing thing. The, how do you call them, tea-boxes. They, at least, are symmetrical.' I could not refrain from a laugh at the way the game appeared to Poirot, and my little friend smiled at me affectionately, bearing no malice. Then he asked, "'But Monsieur Renaud, without doubt, he played the golf?' "'Yes, he was a keen golfer. It's mainly owing to him and to his large subscriptions that this work is being carried forward. He even had a say in the designing of it.' Poirot nodded thoughtfully. Then he remarked, it was not a very good choice they made of a spot to bury the body. When the men began to dig up the ground, all would have been discovered. Exactly, cried Giraud triumphantly. And that proves that they were strangers to the place. It's an excellent piece of indirect evidence. Yes, said Poirot doubtfully. No one who knew would bury a body there, unless unless they wanted it to be discovered. And that is clearly absurd, is it not? Giraud did not even trouble to reply. Yes, said Poirot, in a somewhat dissatisfied voice. Yes, undoubtedly absurd. Chapter 7 The Mysterious Madame de Bray as we retraced our steps to the house, Monsieur Bex excused himself for leaving us, explaining that he must immediately acquaint the examining magistrate with the fact of Giraud's arrival. Giraud himself had been obviously delighted when Poirot declared that he had seen all he wanted. The last thing we observed as we left the spot was Giraud, crawling about on all fours with a thoroughness in his search that I could not but admire. Poirot guessed my thoughts— for as soon as we were alone, he remarked ironically, "'At last you have seen the detective you admire, the human foxhound. Is it not so, my friend?' "'At any rate he's doing something,' 
I said with asperity. If there's anything to find, he'll find it. Now you, ah, bien, I also have found something, a piece of lead piping. Nonsense, Poirot. You know very well that's got nothing to do with it. I meant little things, traces that may lead us infallibly to the murderers. Mon ami, a clue of two feet long is every bit as valuable as one measuring two millimeters. But it is the romantic idea that all important clues must be infinitesimal. Ah, as to the piece of lead piping having nothing to do with the crime, you say that because Giraud told you so. No, as I was about to interpose a question, we will say no more. Leave Giraud to his search and me to my ideas. The case seems straightforward enough. And yet, and yet, mon ami, I am not satisfied. And do you know why? Because of the wristwatch that is two hours fast. And then there are several curious little points that do not seem to fit in. For instance, if the object of the murderers was revenge, why did they not stab Renaud in his sleep and have done with it? They wanted the secret, I reminded him. Poirot brushed a speck of dust from his sleeve with a dissatisfied air. Well, where is this secret? Presumably some distance away, since they wish him to dress himself, yet he is found murdered close at hand, almost within earshot of the house. Then again, it is pure chance that a weapon such as the dagger should be lying about casually, ready to hand. He paused, frowning, and then went on. Why did the servants hear nothing? Was they drugged? Was there an accomplice? And did that accomplice see to it that the front door should remain open? I wonder if... He stopped abruptly. We had reached the drive in front of the house. Suddenly he turned to me. My friend, I am about to surprise you, to please you. I have taken your reproaches to heart. We will examine some footprints. Where? in that right-hand bed yonder. Monsieur Beck says that they are the footmarks of the gardener. Let us see if that is so. See, he approaches with his wheelbarrow. Indeed, an elderly man was just crossing the drive with a barrow full of seedlings. Poirot called to him, and he set down the barrow and came hobbling towards us. You are going to ask him for one of his boots to compare with the footmarks? I asked breathlessly. My faith in Poirot revived a little. Since he said the footprints in this right-hand bed were important, presumably they were. Exactly, said Poirot. But won't he think it very odd? He will not think about it at all. We could say no more, for the old man had joined us. You want me for something, monsieur? Yes, you have been gardener here a long time, haven't you? Twenty-four years, monsieur. And your name is? Auguste, monsieur. I was admiring these magnificent geraniums. They are truly superb. Have they been planted long? Some time, monsieur. But, of course, to keep the beds looking smart, one must keep bedding out a few new plants and remove those that are over, besides keeping the old blooms well picked off. You put in some new plants yesterday, didn't you? Those in the middle there, and in the other bed also? Monsieur has a sharp eye. It takes always a day or so for them to pick up. Yes, I put ten new plants in each bed last night. As Monsieur doubtless knows, one should not put in plants when the sun is hot. 
Auguste was charmed with Poirot's interest, and was quite inclined to be garrulous. That is a splendid specimen there, said Poirot, pointing. Might I perhaps have a cutting of it? But certainly, monsieur. The old fellow stepped into the bed, and carefully took a slip from the plant Poirot had admired. Poirot was profuse in his thanks, and Auguste departed to his barrow. You see, said Poirot with a smile, as he bent over the bed to examine the indentation of the gardener's hobnailed boot, it is quite simple. I did not realize that the foot would be inside the boot. You do not use your excellent mental capacity sufficiently. Well, what of the footmark? I examined the bed carefully. All the footmarks in the bed were made by the same boot, I said at length after a careful study. You think so? Bien, I agree with you, said Poirot. He seemed quite uninterested, as though he were thinking of something else. At any rate, I remarked, you will have one bee less in your bonnet now. Mon Dieu, but what an idiom! What does it mean? What I meant was that now you will give up your interest in these footmarks. But to my surprise, Poirot shook his head. No, no, mon ami, at least I am on the right track. I am still in the dark, but as I hinted just now to Monsieur Bex, these footmarks are the most important and interesting things in the case. That poor Giraud. I should not be surprised if he took no notice of them whatever. At that moment, the front door opened, and Monsieur Rotet and the commissary came down the steps. Ah, Monsieur Poirot, we were coming to look for you, said the magistrate. It is getting late, but I wish to pay a visit to Madame Dubray. Without doubt, she will be very much upset by Monsieur Renaud's death, and we may be fortunate enough to get a clue from her. The secret that he did not confide to his wife, it is possible that he may have told it to the woman whose love held him enslaved. We know where our Samsons are weak, don't we? I admired the picturesqueness of Monsieur Rotet's language. I suspected that the examining magistrate was by now thoroughly enjoying his part in the mysterious drama. "'Is Monsieur Giraud not going to accompany us?' asked Poirot. "'Monsieur Giraud has shown clearly that he prefers to conduct the case in his own way,' said Monsieur Rotet dryly. "'One could see easily enough that Giraud's cavalier treatment to the examining magistrate had not prejudiced the latter in his favour. We said no more, but fell into line. Poirot walked with the examining magistrate, and the commissary and I followed a few paces behind. There is no doubt that Francoise's story is substantially correct, he remarked to me in a confidential tone. I have been telephoning headquarters. It seems that three times in the last six weeks, that is to say since the arrival of Monsieur Renault at Merlonville, Madame de Bray has paid a large sum in notes into her banking account. Altogether, this sum totals two hundred thousand francs. Dear me, I said, considering. That must be something like four thousand pounds. Precisely. There can be no doubt that he was absolutely infatuated. But it remains to be seen whether he confided his secret to her. The examining magistrate is hopeful, but I hardly share his views. During this conversation we were walking down the lane toward the fork in the road where our car had halted earlier in the afternoon, and in another moment 
I realized that the Villa Marguerite, the home of the mysterious Madame Dubray, was the small house from which the beautiful girl had emerged. She has lived here for many years, said the commissary, nodding his head towards the house. Very quietly, very unobtrusively. She seems to have no friends or relations other than the acquaintances she has made in Merlonville. She never refers to the past, nor to her husband. One does not even know if he is alive or dead. There is a mystery about her, you comprehend. I nodded, my interest growing. And the daughter? I ventured. A truly beautiful young girl, modest, devout, all that she should be. One pities her, for though she may know nothing of the past, a man who wants to ask her hand in marriage must necessarily inform himself. And then... The commissary shrugged his shoulders cynically. But it would not be her fault, I cried with rising indignation. No, but what will you? A man is particular about his wife's antecedents. I was prevented from further argument by our arrival at the door. Monsieur Rotet rang the bell. A few minutes elapsed, and then we heard a footfall within, and the door was opened. On the threshold stood my young goddess of that afternoon. When she saw us, the colour left her cheeks, leaving her deathly white, and her eyes widened with apprehension. There was no doubt about it, she was afraid. Mademoiselle Dubray, said Monsieur Rotet, sweeping off his hat. We regret infinitely to disturb you, but the exigencies of the law, you comprehend? My compliments to Madame, your mother, and will she have the goodness to grant me a few moments' interview? For a moment the girl stood, motionless. Her left hand was pressed to her side, as though to still the sudden unconquerable agitation of her heart. But she mastered herself, and said in a low voice, I will go and see. Please come inside. She entered a room on the left of the hall, and we heard the low murmur of her voice, and then another voice, much the same in timbre, but with a slightly harder inflection behind its mellow roundness, said, But certainly, ask them to enter. In another minute we were face to face with the mysterious Madame Dubray. She was not nearly so tall as her daughter, and the rounded curves of her figure had all the grace of full maturity. Her hair, again unlike her daughter's, was dark, and parted in the middle in the Madonna style. Her eyes, half hidden by the drooping lids, were blue. There was a dimple in the round chin, and the half-parted lips seemed always to hover on the verge of a mysterious smile. There was something almost exaggeratedly feminine about her, at once yielding and seductive. Though very well preserved, she was certainly no longer young, but her charm was of the quality which is independent of age. Standing there, in her black dress with the fresh white collar and cuffs, her hands clasped together, she looked subtly appealing and helpless. "'You wish to see me, monsieur?' she asked. "'Yes, madame,' monsieur Rotet cleared his throat. I am investigating the death of Monsieur Renaud. You have heard of it, no doubt. She bowed her head without speaking. Her expression did not change. We came to ask you whether you can uh, 
throw any light upon the circumstances surrounding it. I? The surprise of her tone was excellent. Yes, madame. It would perhaps be better if we could speak to you alone. He looked meaningfully in the direction of the girl. Madame Dubray turned to her. Martyr, dear. But the girl shook her head. No, maman, I will not go. I am not a child. I am twenty-two. I shall not go. Madame Dubray turned back to the examining magistrate. You see, monsieur, I should prefer not to speak before Mademoiselle Dubray. As my daughter says, she is not a child. For a moment the magistrate hesitated, baffled. Very well, madame, he said at last. Have it your own way. We have reason to believe that you were in the habit of visiting the dead man at his villa in the evenings. Is that so? The colour rose in the lady's pale cheeks, but she replied quietly, I deny your right to ask me such a question. Madame, we are investigating a murder. Well, what of it? I have nothing to do with the murder. Madame, we do not say that for a moment. But you knew the dead man well. Did he ever confide in you as to any danger that threatened him? Never. Did he ever mention his life in Santiago? Any enemies he may have made there? No. Then you can give us no help at all? I fear not. I really do not see why you should come to me. Cannot his wife tell you what you want to know? Her voice held a slender inflection of irony. Madame Renaud has told us all she can. Ah, said Madame Dubray. I wonder. You wonder what, madame? Nothing. The examining magistrate looked at her. He was aware that he was fighting a duel, and that he had no mean antagonist. You persist in your statement that Monsieur Renault confided nothing in you? Why should you think it likely that he should confide in me? Because, madame, said Monsieur Rotet, with calculated brutality, a man tells his mistress what he does not always tell to his wife. Ah! She sprang forward. Her eyes flashed fire. Monsieur, you insult me, and before my daughter. I can tell you nothing. Have the goodness to leave my house. The honours undoubtedly rested with the lady. We left the Villa Marguerite like a shame-faced pack of schoolboys. The magistrate muttered angry ejaculations to himself. Poirot seemed lost in thought. Suddenly he came out of his reverie with a start, and inquired of Monsieur Rotet if there was a good hotel near at hand. There is a small place, the Hôtel de Bain, on this side of town. A few hundred yards down the road. It will be handy for your investigations. We shall see you in the morning, then, I presume? Yes, I thank you, Monsieur Rotet. With mutual civilities we parted company, Poirot and I going towards Merlonville, and the others returning to the Villa Genevieve. The French police system is very marvellous, said Poirot, looking after them. The information they possess about everyone's life, down to the most commonplace detail, is extraordinary. Though he has only been here a little over six weeks, they are perfectly well acquainted with Monsieur Renaud's tastes and pursuits, and at a moment's notice they can produce information as to Madame de Bray's banking account, 
and the sums that have lately been paid in. Undoubtedly the dossier is a great institution. But what is that? He turned sharply. A figure was running hatless down the road after us. It was Martha Dubray. I beg your pardon, she cried breathlessly as she reached us. I, I should not do this, I know. You must not tell my mother. But it is true what the people say, that Monsieur Renault called in a detective before he died, and, and that you are he? Yes, mademoiselle, said Poirot gently. It is quite true. But how did you learn it? Francoise told our Amélie, explained Martha with a blush. Poirot made a grimace. The secrecy. It is impossible in an affair of this kind. Not that it matters. Well, mademoiselle, what is it you want to know? The girl hesitated. She seemed longing yet fearing to speak. At last, almost in a whisper, she asked, Is anyone suspected? Poirot eyed her keenly. Then he replied evasively, Suspicion is in the air at present, mademoiselle. Yes, I know, but anyone in particular? Why do you wish to know? The girl seemed frightened by the question. All at once, Poirot's words about her earlier in the day recurred to me. The girl with the anxious eyes. Monsieur Renaud was always very kind to me, she replied at last. It is natural that I should be interested. I see, said Poirot. Well, mademoiselle, suspicion at present is hovering round two persons. Two? I could have sworn there was a note of surprise and relief in her voice. Their names are unknown, but they are presumed to be Chileans from Santiago. And now, mademoiselle, you see what comes of being young and beautiful. I have betrayed professional secrets for you. The girl laughed merrily, and then rather shyly she thanked him. I must run back now. Maman will miss me. And she turned and ran back up the road, looking like a modern Atalanta. I stared after her. Mon ami, said Poirot, in his gentle, ironical voice. Is it that we are to remain planted here all night, just because you have seen a beautiful young woman, and your head is in a whirl? I laughed and apologized. But she is beautiful, Poirot. Anyone might be excused for being bowled over by her. Poirot groaned, Mon Dieu! But it is that you have this susceptible heart. Poirot, I said, do you remember after the Styles case, when, when you were in love with two charming women at once, and neither of them were for you? Yes, I remember. You consoled me by saying that perhaps some day we should hunt together again, and that then... Eh bien? Well, we are hunting together again, and... Uh, I paused and laughed rather self-consciously. But to my surprise, Poirot shook his head very earnestly. Ah, mon ami, do not set your heart on Martha Dubray. She is not for you, that one. Take it from Papa Poirot. Why? I cried. The commissary assured me that she was as good as she is beautiful, a perfect angel. Some of the greatest criminals I have known had the faces of angels, remarked Poirot cheerfully. A malformation of the grey cells may coincide quite easily with the face of a Madonna. 
Poirot, I cried, horrified. You cannot mean that you suspect an innocent child like this. Dot, dot, dot. Do not excite yourself. I have not said that I suspected her. But you must admit that her anxiety to know about the case is somewhat unusual. For once I see further than you do, I said. Her anxiety is not for herself, but for her mother. My friend, said Poirot. As usual, you see nothing at all. Madame de Bray is very well able to look after herself without her daughter worrying about her. I admit I was teasing you just now, but all the same, I repeat what I said before. Do not set your heart on that girl. She is not for you. I, Hercule Poirot, know it. Sacré! If only I could remember where I had seen that face. What face? I asked, surprised. The daughter's? No, the mother's. Noting my surprise, he nodded emphatically. But yes, it is as I tell you. It was a long time ago, when I was still with the police in Belgium. I have never actually seen the woman before, but I have seen her picture. And in connection with some case, I rather fancy... Yes? I may be mistaken, but I rather fancy that it was a murder case. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 2 of 7, by Agatha Christie. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>